Hello, listeners. Welcome to the year-end edition, the last episode in the year 2023 for the Charting the Territories podcast. My name is Al Getz, and I am joined by my fearless and feared (laughs) co-host, feared by many, uh, definitely feared by people who think they are good at Gordon Soley's uh, championship oh, wrestling trivia game. Come on, uh, but this is uh, John Boucher. John, happy December. Happy December. Oh, I got my got my eggnog along with my water. So I'm all right. Fantastic. You are you are all set. So uh, I you know we are in the cold season and the territory we're covering. This month on the podcast is also known for colder weather as compared to most other territories, particularly in the U.S., maybe not so much as in Canada, but I'm, of course, I'm talking about the AWA, the American Wrestling Association. So, John, I'm just curious, did you ever get confused which ones were alliances and which ones were associations of all the various, you know, acronyms? Yes, AWA, I, I used to get that confused, uh... Even when I you know, just seeing it in the magazines when I was a kid and not really wa- being able to watch AWA. I think the first time I saw and maybe this is true for you, AWA regularly uh, was on that. Uh, that Remember that Pro Wrestling USA show that came on? I like do. Around? Yeah. Yep. That was the first time. Initially, it was like a conglomeration of, you know, Jarrett Crockett and uh, Vern. And eventually this became like an AWA show after everyone right. decided they couldn't get along. So that was <laughs> shocking. Uh, that was my intro. Yeah. Yeah. And then of course, from there, uh, they got on the ESPN, ESPN yeah, uh, yeah. and I watched it there, but uh, what we're going to do uh, this month is look at the AWA in 1971. We will compare and contrast the territory to the others that we've covered so far this year and point out the differences in the, uh, what I call the booking philosophy and pacing of this territory. We're also going to look into the life and tragic death of Hercules Cortez, who was killed in a car accident while driving to Minneapolis from Winnipeg after a show. As always, we will post a lot of the things we talk about on this episode to X, the application formerly known as Twitter. You can follow me on X at Al Getz Wrestling. That's Al G-E-T-Z Wrestling. And you can follow John at J-O-N underscore B-O-U-C-H-E-R. And when we post things uh, related to this month's episode, we will use the hashtag CTTDEC23, short for Charting the Territory, CTT, DEC for December, and 23 for the year 2023. So you can actually do a search for that hashtag on X, and all of the posts uh, from us relating to this episode will pop up. You can also order my latest almanac, which was released uh, the day before we were recording this uh, and a week before this episode comes out. Uh, This almanac looks at the heart of America, a.k.a. Central States Wrestling Territory, in the early 1970s. You can order it worldwide via Amazon. Just search for Charting the Territories Al Getz. Or you can get an autographed copy by ordering from me directly at chartingtheterritories.com. And John, I did a pre-sale uh, which was the first time I was able to do it. Uh, I offered uh, people a discount if they ordered it ahead of time. And I, 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 in some ways, I felt really special because yesterday I w- went to the post office to ship out those orders. I had to make two separate trips. Wow. Yeah, a good, a a good problem to have. Although a part of that is also because I have a small car. I have a little two seater <laughs> convertible. So, you know, don't think that I, you know, am, am, you know, have a truckload of the things, but I literally, 
uh, had to uh, go in two separate shifts. You got to get the uh, the scale and a little printer. Just do it at home the old, uh, with stamps dot com or whatever. Uh, you we'll, do that. we'll we'll put it this way. Uh, based on you know my past experience, after the the initial rush, there's definitely not uh, <laughs> oh, okay. a, a need for it. But also, you know, I was looking at uh, things on Amazon. We're we're about to we're, we're just bubbling under the top 100 wrestling books. Uh, you remember Billboard magazine? I used to have the Hot 100, but then they'd always have, <laughs> yeah, yeah, they yeah, called yeah. it Bubbling Under for like the yeah. 10 next uh-huh. uh, upwardly tracking songs. So we're bubbling under the uh, top 100 of all wrestling books currently nice. on Amazon. So, it, uh, again, uh, you know, these aren't your typical wrestling books. There's no behind the scenes drama, gossip stories. Uh, and it's more than a results book. It, it presents this information in a, a very unique way. Uh, but if you're really interested in seeing how a territory actually functioned, then the books, uh, all three of the books so far from charting the territories are a great way of doing that. And of course, John, we're going to have all our usual segments, including stuff John bought me off eBay. This month I learned, and we're going to have the second edition of the new John plays Gordon Soley's championship wrestling trivia, where John competes against a different guest challenger every month. John defeated his first challenger, Todd Rosiak, last month. Who's next? We'll find out a little bit later, but we're going to kick things off with stuff John bought me off eBay. John, this is not the first time that the item you bought me was related to the main topic of our podcast. No. You've done it a couple of times before, and this time, of course, we were talking about the AWA. So John uh, found some programs, not just from the AWA, but also from right around the time frame we are discussing. They're from 1970 and 1971. Yep. So, yep. John, I assume this was intentional that you were looking for an AWA item? Yeah, I mean, honestly, that's my go-to initial eBay search every month. Like, I would love to get you programs from the exact time frame we're covering that usually never works out this month i this month this month i lucked out a lot of times they're you know they're way overpriced uh these worked perfectly it was a nice a good amount i think there's six is it six programs total yeah Yeah. there are for it was in the budget in the time frame so Chef Kiss, it worked Worked out out perfectly. Well, a a little sneak preview of next month. Uh, John has already bought me an item related to the territory (laughs) we're going to cover next month. Uh, And it's an actual it's it's an actual piece of, I guess, what we'll call the infrastructure uh, (laughs) from uh, one of the parts of that territory. But these six programs, like I mentioned, came from 70 and 71, and they were published by Norm Keitzer who did programs for a few different territories at this time, including Leroy McGurk's territory in Oklahoma, Louisiana, and the surrounding area. We've talked about uh, his McGurk programs in the past, but what's neat is there's some little, I I pick up some little interesting tidbits and little nuggets of information from these programs. Um, The ones from 1970 refer to the Rookie of the Year, Bob Windham, who was in the AWA in 1970 and I think finished up like the first week of 1971. But by the end of 1971, he appears on some cards in Chicago, which are joint uh, productions featuring AWA and WWA wrestlers. And at that time, he has already changed his name to Blackjack Mulligan. Hmm. So in the same territory, in the same calendar year, he's got some bookings as Bob Windham in January and then in December, November, December as Blackjack Mulligan. Huh. 
but there's also uh, the programs from the early ones in 1970 are eight pages and the middle the middle pages uh, seem to be specific to the the show they're being sold at. Um, for the most part, a lot of the stories and articles in these programs um, are the same throughout the territory. Like the program you buy in Milwaukee has many of the same articles as what you buy in Denver and Minneapolis and Green Bay and so on. But there is a little in uh, a, a few pages that seem to be market specific. All of these programs uh, came from Milwaukee. And by the time you get to the summer of 1970, the lineup for the house show are, are done via a separate insert. So the eight page program is printed up, you know, probably, you know, I don't know if it's done by Norm or if it's, you know, done by Vern's office. And then they print up a little one page that on one side has the lineup for that night's house show. And on the other side has a, a plug for that market's TV, what station and what time it airs. And then the date of the next house show in that market. So it's but it's just interesting to you know learn about these programs because for the most part they are you know distributed the same program all across the territory so you can't necessarily say last week in Milwaukee this happened yeah. therefore this is happening uh, the programs are more generic and talking about the feuds and the programs and the newcomers and then they just have the little insert that tells you the matches taking place that night. Also, uh, one of the programs, well, they also run ads for Vern Gagne's exercise program, Ooh. which in 1970 only cost a buck. And that's about $8. I think it's $7.93 in today's money. So for $7.93, you can train like Vern Gagne. Wow. Get some Dynapower. Wash yes. some Dynapower. You'd be all, all set. I'm going to assume that was sold separately. And probably that's where that's where the big markup was. Now, you know, I've got your dollar and here's, you know, uh, but if you really, really want to see results, order, you know, this. Uh, but I actually, also, uh, actually have a, a label from Vern Gagne's Dynapower. And I've always wanted to just try to recreate the Dynapower mix and take it and get super jacked or, or or have yeah. explosive but diarrhea. It only lists the ingredients. It doesn't tell you the quantities of each, does it? I mean, of course, it's in, no. it's in descending order. The first ingredient is the one there's the most of. But still, you if you don't get the exact formula right, you might blow up the lab. Yeah, yeah or myself. <laughs> or yourself, one or the other. Um, also, one of the programs, they actually list all the local promoters for the different markets. Which, oh, wow. to the best of my knowledge, seems legit with one possible exception. Um, mm. So there are two promoters listed for Minneapolis. One, of course, is Wally Carbo, and the other is Bill Cusisto, which is a name I'm not familiar with. Mm. But there's a separate local promoter listed for St. Paul. Uh, and if you know your geography, they're the Twin Cities. They're yep. right next to one another. They're in the same television market, but they each had their own house shows and apparently had different local promoters. Mm -hmm. But this list also gives us a feel for all of the markets they had, um, they were running in. So there are promoters listed for Fargo, Moorhead, North Dakota, Duluth, Minnesota, Denver, Colorado, Milwaukee, Moline and Davenport, Iowa. And then a separate one for Rock Island, Illinois, which is actually in the same TV market as Moline and Davenport. Those are three of what's called the Quad Cities. Hmm. Additionally, there's a Don Frazier of Los Angeles listed. 
Hmm. Now, I have no knowledge of Vern trying to make inroads into Southern California at this time. Of course, we know in later years he would go into Northern California. And I think even before that, there was some sort of attempt to run in Northern California. Um, but I, I don't know if this is legit or if they just made up this name to try and make it seem like, oh, wow, they're even in L.A. Huh. But I don't know. Hmm. There's coast also, to coast, border to border. Right. Yeah. They also <laughs> list, uh, and this one is interesting. They list uh, Joe Dusick of Omaha in their list of quote unquote AWA promoters. Now, in 1970 hmm. and 1971, and of course, we've covered Dusick's territory yeah. earlier this year on the podcast, he was running his own separate territory. Yes, on occasion, he would bring Vern in, but by and large, he had his own crew. Uh, it's not until later in 1972 that you see more and more AWA wrestlers on Dusix cards. And by the end of the year, he's basically just a local promoter for Vern. So it's interesting to see him listed here in 1970. So perhaps, yeah. perhaps they are treating Dusix territory much in the same way that the NWA would treat all the individual territories, uh, yeah. uh, you know, and, and I, I said this on X recently because Vern doesn't wrestle full time in this territory. I wonder if they treat him on the TV the same way that the NWA territories treated the world champion, someone who's referenced to, uh, you know, referenced frequently, but only comes in a few times a year, mm. particularly in the smaller yeah. markets like the Quad Cities and Duluth and places like that, where Vern is not a regular character. Perhaps the TV portrays him as a true world champion. And then the one or two times a year he's coming to that town, they treat it like a big deal. Mm. Interesting. So that's, you know, the, the more things we find and the more little pieces of information we find, we learn these little nuggets and little tidbits that help us truly understand how all these different companies were, you know, were related and, and how well Vern and the Dusix may have worked. And, you know, according to this, they, uh, they had a good relationship, even though they were separate territories. Yeah. So to learn more about the AWA in 1971, go to charting to see a year in the life. Uh, there's a lot of info and stats and data that we won't bore you with on this podcast, but uh, <laughs> if you want, if you want to look at those things, they're available uh, on the World Wide Web. One of the unique components of a year in the life is the fact sheet that I put together, um, which has some interesting metrics and data points that let you see how the territory functioned. And the AWA was a very different territory than many others. In fact, the AWA and the WWWF both had significant differences from the bulk of the other territories in the U.S. and Canada. Uh, and the three main areas are how often they ran shows in specific cities or markets. Of course, most territories had weekly loops. We know the WWWF, by and large, had a monthly uh, appearance in, in their major cities. Uh, in the AWA, it's more like every three weeks or so but still um, similar to the WWWF. Uh, and because of this, they have a slower and more methodical pacing of the booking. If we understand that a wrestler gets pushed by winning a series of matches against increasingly more difficult opponents, well, then a weekly loop, it just takes a few weeks for a guy to move from the prelims up to the higher end of the cards. Here, Instead of being in a town every week, they're only there every three weeks. So it's a much slower process 
to build a wrestler and to push him. And then the other difference is the number of major cities they ran. Of course, we know the WWWF ran the most major metropolitan areas in the U.S. So looking at the fact sheet, one thing I noticed is the number of title changes in the territory during the year. They had two titles, the World Heavyweight title and the World Tag Team titles. And between those two, there's only one in-ring title change in 1971, John. Hmm. And that is the uh, the tag team titles. Uh, at the beginning of the year, the Vashon brothers, Mad Dog and Butcher, were the champions. And then in the spring, uh, the team of Red Bastine and Hercules Cortez defeated the Vashans to win them. And of course, the Vashans probably lost them because they were about to start, you know, promoting in Montreal, the uh, opposition. Yeah. Yeah. So they needed to drop the belts and Bastien and Cortez were there. Um, Now there was another, uh, another set of champions because as we mentioned earlier, Cortez passed away and he actually passed away while he and Bastien held the titles. So after a few weeks, they did a deal where Bastien was allowed to select a new partner and he chose the crusher because I mean, if, if that's if that's a viable option for you to choose to be your tag team partner, that's who I would choose. Yeah, <laughs> who else? So, but that of course was not an in ring title change. So, with two titles, there's only one change. And you know, we've looked at territories like Gulf Coast uh, and East Texas, where there are multiple titles, all having you know half a dozen or you know a few or several title changes. This is far and away the fewest number of title changes we've seen out of the 12 different territories we've looked at this year. Yeah. Yeah. Very similar to like looking at the, 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 the WWF at the time where it's right. very, not a lot of angles happening on TV, maybe like one angle a year in very, very slow pace, but that yeah. totally makes sense when you talk about, you know, the frequency with which they run the towns and all that. Yeah. They just have to pace things slower. Yeah. And I, I may have said this before on this podcast, but I think that's one of the reasons why, Vince and also Vern were the two promoters best suited to uh, win the wrestling war once that happened. Excellent, excellent point. um, Because if you're expanding, you can't run your towns weekly anymore. You have to run them less often. And thus, you would have to make certain changes to the booking, which is something that Crockett kind of sort of did. Feuds lasted longer. Uh, once he went national, but he still has that frenetic pacing of the TV and, and running angles regularly. Whereas Vince and Vern could slow things down and, 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 you know, make sure every angle got time to breathe and work its way throughout the, all of the towns. Um, also there were zero turns. Um, this isn't the only territory that we've looked at so far that had no turns, but, Obviously, it's, you know, one of a few that uh, had none. But the most interesting difference uh, that I saw was uh, the breakdown of wins and losses as it relates to baby faces and heels. Um, Out of the 12 territories we've looked at so far this year, all in 1971, the AWA is the first territory where the heels won more often than the baby faces. Hmm. So let's see if we can figure out why that was. One important thing to note is that when I do these calculations, I'm only counting matches between a clearly defined babyface and a clearly defined heel. Face versus face matches and heel versus heel matches just are are not included. And in the AWA, most of the preliminary wrestlers were babyfaces. So the undercards 
even more so in the AWA than in other places, had a lot of babyface versus babyface matches. And many of those would be time limit draws, but others would have one of the two babyfaces win. So when we're looking at the overall breakdown of the preliminary matches, some babyfaces win and some heels win. But since this, uh, these st- statistics only include face versus heel matches, you see a lot more heels winning. Another factor is Vern Gagne and the fact that he is yep. a part-time wrestler in his home base. Um, I have about two dozen uh, advertised bookings for Vern in the territory during the year. There was about a month and a half where he's in Hawaii, and it seems like he's literally there full-time on vacation and wrestling regularly to get a tax write-off. And he does make appearances, as we mentioned, for the Dusex. And I think at one, and I think in Montreal um, later on in the year, as part of the the Vachans opening up, I guess they would 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 have brought in Vern for a little bit of credibility. Oh, um, but in his home base, he's not wrestling a lot, which means a lot of these matches lower on the cards are building up challengers for him. And what's interesting is when we look at the wins and losses for the main events. That is where the baby faces are winning more than the heels. So what happens is mm. the heels are being built up uh, in the bottom half of the cards and then even into the upper mid cards. And someone is built up to be a contender for Vern. Vern doesn't wrestle them in every city. He's only working the main cities, but of course Vern will, you know, they, they might have a, a two or three match program, but Vern will come out on top in the end. And then that wrestler, as they're finishing up, instead of facing Vern, they then usually are programmed against the Crusher. And the Crusher was always protected pretty strongly, so he's not losing a a lot of main events. So basically, that's that's how the life cycle of a heel at this time in the AWA would go. They would start out in the bottom of the cards, winning matches over preliminary baby faces, then up to the mid cards, getting wins over those getting up to the upper mid cards and maybe, you know, going to a time limit draw with a red Bastine and then beating them in a rematch and then setting themselves up for a, either a title shot with Vern or a feud with the crusher. Um, and if they do have a feud with Vern after they lose that, they probably then again have a feud with the crusher and then they hit the road, Jack. Yep. yep. And then, the, then it starts again. And then, and then the process starts all over again. Yeah, so again, that, sounds yeah. very much like the WWF, you know, with, yeah. the, with, with Bruno, you know, to have you have whether it's, you know, depending on when, you know, you have like Jay Strongbow or Ivan Putski in that crusher role, either on the way up or the way out. You know? Right. Yeah. Th- yeah. Those guys often were the guys that the heel would beat to get to Bruno. But sometimes they would be the after Bruno, because particularly in the WWF uh, in towns where their feud with Bruno was a one and done. The wrestler mm-hmm. is still in the territory because they're having matches in the other cities. So yeah. that's where a Putski would come into play, where Putski would get a win over them. Or maybe they do it to a tag team bat where the monster yeah, yeah. heel and somebody else lose to Gurria and Martel, for example. Yeah, you see that a lot. Yep. Yeah. So, you know, that that's sort of how the pacing of those two der- territories is vastly different from most of the others, particularly the ones that have a weekly loop. So let's look at the roster 
for the territory in 1971. And of course, both John and I have compiled some uh, little nuggets and factoids about many of these wrestlers. Uh, this is a list of the wrestlers who worked here regularly for at least some part of the calendar year. They are put into different categories based on their average weekly spot rating, which is our exclusive statistic that measures a wrestler's average position on the cards. So we're going to start, John, with our main event baby faces. And, and the uh, highest ranked main event baby face by spot rating is uh, the Crusher. Well, you know, while it's been made of his uh, being a, a football player for South Milwaukee High, and he, you know, it, it, it was a good football player. He was only JV football, never made the varsity football team, but he was actually on the varsity basketball team, which uh, I don't, I, I couldn't imagine him as a basketball player, but. <laughs> I, I can't picture that as well, but uh, you know, sometimes when guys are athletes, they are just excel at every sport. Yeah. Um, Crusher held many tag team titles with various partners over the years, but I did find one that I thought was an odd couple pairing uh, in 1979 in Georgia, the Crusher and Tommy Rich held the Georgia tag team titles briefly. That just huh. seems that uh, I, you know, I almost pictured the magazine, the, the PWI cover with Kerry Von Erich and Michael Hayes with the milk and the Jack Daniels. <laughs> yeah. I see the Crusher and Tommy Rich, you know, Crusher with a cigar and I, you know, Tommy Rich, I don't know what team beat magazine or something. <laughs> or, or Coors banquet beer. <laughs> there you go. Yes. Um, uh, Next on the list is someone we're going to talk more about a little later, Hercules Cortez, followed by Red Bastine. Well, Red Bastine is uh, credited as having trained uh, future Blade Runners, Jim Helwig and Steve Borden. I, I, I'm sure at some point he probably wanted that off his curriculum vitae, <laughs> but uh, in the long run, I guess it worked out. Uh, Red was born in the city of Bottineau, North Dakota. I hope I'm pronouncing that right, which is also home to... Tommy Turtle, the world's largest turtle statue, John. It's, wow. <laughs> it's made of fiberglass and stands about 30 feet high. Wow. That is, <laughs> that is one large turtle. Yes. Uh, Dr. X, uh, a.k.a. Dick Byer. Dick Byer. This is a, 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 he was married twice, uh, both times to women named Wilma. So it's, it's two of my closest male friends are both named Matt and it's just so easy. You never have to worry, wait, which one am I talking to? Which one am I going, <laughs> meeting up with? Because it's Matt. So perhaps it was the same here. Yeah, it's um, easy. In 2017, Dick Byer was awarded one of Japan's highest honors, the Order of the Rising Sun. It's awarded to people mm -hmm. who have rendered distinguished service to the state in various fields. And Bayer is just one of a handful of sports figures given this honor. The only other two I'm aware of are Hank Aaron and Tommy Lasorda. Oh, wow. That's quite a crew. That's So that would be a great uh, six-man tag team uh, <laughs> duo. Bayer, Hank, and uh, Tommy Lasorda. I think we know who's taken the, taken the fall in that match. Could you imagine Tommy Lasorda as a wrestling manager? I think he'd be great. Him I and Earl Weaver uh, as the heel manager. Yes. I, I mean, <laughs> I could see him being very Heenan-esque. Yeah, as a I was thinking like a combination of Heenan and maybe like uh, like Eddie Creechman, like an Italian right. Eddie Creechman. Yeah? <laughs> God, he might have missed. We he might have missed out on something. Um, on the heel side, our main eventers are Mad Dog Vashon. 
Uh, Mad Dog was actually responsible for initially pitching the idea of Jim Rashke becoming a German heel. And he suggested the uh, name of Baron Fritz von Pumpkin initially. <laughs> Which, what was the Tom together. Hanks character from Saturday Night Live? Uh, was it Rupert Pumpkins? It was something like <laughs> something S. Pumpkins. Rupert S. Pumpkins? Something that like it? that, yeah. It's in the eleva- elevator. Hey. <laughs> uh, next up. Larry Hennig. Larry Hennig has a beer named after him uh, by the Wicked Worked Brewery of Robbinsdale, Minnesota, named The Axe is Back. And it's a pecan brown beer or pecan brown beer, I guess. Pecan. Pecan. Sounds much more, you know, uh, (laughs) sophisticated, sophisticated for a beer named after a wrestler. (laughs) Um, One interesting thing I found out about Larry that I didn't know about uh, when his son, Kurt, was wrestling in Portland. I think this was 82 or so. Larry actually went there for a month to team up with him and they feuded with Buddy Rose, Rip Oliver and Matt Bourne. It's interesting to see, you know, a towards the tail end of his in-ring career, Larry Hennig being such a small territory as Portland, but of course, to help his son, Kurt, you know, get established. That's what a father does for a son. Yeah. Uh, next up, Blackjack Lanza. So I didn't know this until researching him uh, recently. He was uh, a so- sociology teacher before becoming a wrestler. Man, I, I would I would have done all my homework. If, if Lanza was my teacher, I would have made sure I was never late for a single assignment. Yeah, uh, I'm just, uh, yeah. Lanza was uh, from Laredo, Texas, which is the same hometown as current NXT wrestler Roxanne Perez. Huh. Uh, in the upper mid-carder category on the babyface side, we had Billy Robinson. And Billy Robinson comes from a, a, a whole family lineage of fighters. Uh, his father and uncle were both boxers, and his grandfather was a, a, a British bare-knuckle boxing champion. Wow. That's quite quite the pedigree. Um, yeah, uh, Robinson, you know, wrestled in tag teams occasionally. His his most frequent tag team partner, according to WrestlingData.com, was Wahoo McDaniel. And I am trying to picture oh. how a shoot fight between Billy Robinson and Wahoo McDaniel in 1971 would have gone. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I want I want to say Billy would destroy him, but it's freaking Wahoo, man. Yeah. I, one, th- one thing I do know is I know there would definitely be two different versions, at least two different versions <laughs> there, of yes, how it happened yes. and who won. Yeah. That is true. Uh, <laughs> next up is uh, Edouard uh, Carpentier. <laughs> he worked as a stunt double uh, for Italian actor uh, Lino Ventura, who was also an ex-pro wrestler before getting into wrestling. And it was actually through Lino Ventura that Carpentier himself actually got into the wrestling business. Uh, he was famously born in France, of course, but perhaps less well-known is that his father was Russian and his mother was Polish. Yeah. Uh, next up, Bull Belinsky. And that, we've talked about him before on the podcast. Uh, oh, and yeah. How, uh, you know, the truck driver gimmick he did. Uh, so if you want to learn more about Belinsky, uh, go back to the archives. Uh, but next up on the uh, heel side, uh, the upper mid-carders, first up is Lars Anderson. Uh, well, Lars actually legitimately wrestled at the Olympic trials in New York uh, during the summer of 64. Did not make it, uh, but he was one of four wrestlers from St. Cloud State College to do so. He's also not the only pro wrestler to have attended St. Cloud State University. Three-time TNA Women's Knockout Champion ODB also really? went there, as yeah. did MacGyver. Richard Dean Anderson. <laughs> wow. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's a, 
Next, next up, we talked, of course, about Mad Dog Vashon earlier, but now uh, his brother, Butcher Vashon. Oh, the Butcher, Paul Vashon, who I've, I've met and who is lovely, uh, after wrestling, launched a political career running for office in the Canadian House of Commons under the New Democratic Party. And that all sounds well and good, but I think he got 0.9% of the vote. So <laughs> <laughs> yes, let's yeah. not get too excited no. about it. But no, uh, no, no. I actually found something interesting about Butcher Vashon's family ties that I didn't know. So instead of talking about it now, I'm saving it for our This Month I Learned coming ah. up uh, towards the end of the podcast. Uh, next up, uh, Shozo, a.k.a. Strong Kobayashi. He is credited as being the first masked Japanese wrestler to work in the country. Uh, he's also one of just five wrestlers with at least 50 documented matches against Andre the Giant who had a winning record against Andre. Huh. Well, now, most of those are in tag tag team matches, but still, that's impressive. So the other four are Randy Savage, The Ultimate Warrior, Antonio Inoki, and Tatsumi Fujinami. Huh. So that's that's very good company. That gives you an idea of how highly regarded Kobayashi was. And also a very good trivia question. Too. And, and speaking of highly regarded wrestlers, this is one of those. He's on all of our favorite wrestlers list, oh, yeah. and that is Ray Stevens. Yeah. Ray Stevens broke into wrestling at just 15 years old, which was the same age when he had his first child, <laughs> a son <laughs> named Roy. Wow. Uh, I found an interesting fact. There was a there was an indie wrestler in New Jersey about 10 years ago with the ring name X-Ray Stevens. <laughs> <laughs> I just got a huge kick out of that. Uh, oh, God, that's good. Yeah. yeah. Oh. After Stevens is Nick Bockwinkle. And what's really interesting about Bockwinkle in 1971, he starts there either very late 70 or the, right at the beginning of 71. and as we mentioned earlier, this is a much slower paced territory. Well, on our site, when you have a year in the life, we look at the spot ratings for each wrestler week by week. And I use color shading to show how high up on the card they are. And Bachwinkle, it's a really slow climb up the cards for him. In fact, it probably would have been even slower, but they they were sort of forced to give him a really big push after Cortez died. Basically, um, the night after Cortez died, he was supposed to fight Bockwinkle in Minneapolis. They actually had Vern wrestle Bockwinkle in a non-title match, and Bockwinkle pinned him. Oh, wow. So uh, it seems like his push, as slow as it was, it was sped up because uh, they needed to do something special, I guess, to you know take the uh, death of Cortez off the minds of fans and give them something mm-hmm. really special, and that's a non-title match. Pinfall defeat of Vern Gagne. Yeah. And also that, you know, back to something we said earlier about the heels winning more. If Bonkwinkle is taking forever to move up the cards, he's winning virtually all of those matches. So mm. when we calculate how many times a heel beat a babyface and a babyface beat a heel, that slower push uh, all for the heels also explains it. Um, yeah, it's really again too. Like I always talk about this whenever we talk about your your stats and your your books and your your charts is the visual aspect of looking at Bachwinkle's ascent. You get a really nice, a very smooth gradient 
Yeah. <laughs> when you look at his and I love just I'm, I, I'm scared of numbers. So I just love being able to look at that and you get the you really get a sense for like, oh, just slowly moving up the cars yeah. there. You know, it's and, great. and that's exactly why I do it, because you're not alone in being scared of numbers. So this is a <laughs> visual representation without yeah. numbers. Uh, yeah. And it's just another way we try and show how wrestlers roll in a territory changes, how they get pushed, how they get de-pushed. Sometimes when they transition into a tag team, you know, their their level changes or when they turn, that's usually a way to bump somebody up the cards. Uh, a mid-card babyface, maybe he turns heel and moves up to the upper mid-cards and is is part of a tag team that gets a title run. That, that's a, a lot of the, the tricks bookers would use yep. to, to move guys up. Uh, we're now going to move down to the mid-carders. Uh, first up is Paul Diamond, and this is not... Uh, the Orient Express, you know, Cato, uh, Paul Diamond. This was, uh, what was his last name? I think Lehman. Yes, 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 yes. He, uh, after wrestling, opened a sandwich shop in California. And he <laughs> would do a, uh, like a sandwich Nazi gimmick, which is sort of a take on the uh, Seinfeld <laughs> soup, soup Nazi. Nazi. Okay. Interesting. <laughs> now, um, Dick Beyer, uh, Dr. X, famously unmasked in the AWA as part of a TV angle in August 1970. However, in at least two markets, he had been unmasked at house shows, and one of those was by Paul Diamond in Duluth, Minnesota. So that gives you an idea of of you know what they thought of Paul Diamond. He was you know uh, he was one of the guys that unmasked freaking you know uh, yeah. Dick Byer. Uh, yeah, next wow. next up is Billy Redcloud. Billy Redcloud in uh, only in Arizona he worked as uh, Killer Kane, which was a heel gimmick apparently inspired by uh, the character from the Buck Rogers comic strip. Though I don't know if Killer Kane had the Lex Luthor style shaved head uh, as Billy Red Cloud did. So I'm not sure how that worked. I remember he had a mustache, I think. So I guess, uh, I don't know. Red Cloud was born in White Earth, Minnesota, which is the largest Indian reservation in the state. And there's one other wrestler who was from White Earth, and that's Princess Tona Tama who may have been married to Billy Wolf when he was in his 60s and she was 18. Oh, dear. <laughs> uh, on the heel side in the mid-cards, first up is someone we talked about last month. So uh, that's Ivan Koloff. And, of course, you may think he was a mid-carder. Again, he came in, I think, in the fall and just like Bockwinkle, spent a long time being pushed up the cards. In the case of Bockwinkle, because he was here the entire calendar year, you get his, you get all of his push, plus then you get the stuff after the summer when he was a made guy. Here, Koloff is still being pushed up the cards as the year ends. And when you look at 1972, of course, he's in a much higher spot on the cards. Uh, the other mid-card heel is the Big K, Stan mm. Kowalski, and we've done a, a dive on him before. He also had a p political career, which I believe was slightly more successful than Butcher Vachon's. A little bit, yeah. <laughs> uh, and in this territory at the time, he was he was what I call a player coach. He was a full-time wrestler and presented as a capable wrestler, but he also was a manager, and here he managed Kobayashi, presumably yes. to do the interviews for him. Yep, yep, yep. Uh, now, in the preliminary wrestlers uh, on the babyface side, uh, again, someone we just talked about last month, Jack Pasek, uh, uh, not last month, but a, a few months ago. Uh, and we talked about him uh, beating up Dusik in the dressing room at one point. Uh, <laughs> and then uh, next up is Don Morocco. 
One of my personal favorites, Don Morocco, um, actually turned down like a football scholarship to the University of Hawaii, like, free ride to pursue uh, a career in pro wrestling. He was a good high school pro wrestler, um, also excellent at the at the old shot put, but a big deal, huge deal as a football player, captain of the team, all district tackle. You look at him in the, the 19 from 1960. Six to sixty-nine. He's on the cover of the paper all the time. Wow! Um, and a, a, like, and a big dude, like six, like a, a legit. This isn't like wrestling height and weight. Like six two, two hundred twenty-five pounds as a sixteen, seventeen-year-old. Just like a huge dude. Wow! Now, of course, yeah. Morocco feuded with Jimmy Snuka um, mm-hmm. in, in the eighties, but. Morocco also trained a man who had a notorious indie feud with Snuka, and that is the Metal Maniac. Their <laughs> their legendary indie feud that uh, you know raged across New Jersey, Pennsylvania, and Maryland <laughs> yeah. for a decade, in which the Maniac probably won three matches out of out of you know a hundred hundreds. I'm surprised it's that many. Another wrestler named Jack we talked about last month, and that's that is Jack Bentz. Yes. Uh, and next up, uh, someone who just recently passed away yeah. uh, back in October, Bill Howard. Yeah, uh, Bill Howard once worked as a booker in South Africa in 1984, hmm. which who knows how that went. Um, I think he got the job, I think, through uh, Steve Simpson's. Uh, you know, from WCCW. Right. I think his dad was involved in the office there, but yeah. Still. There, there's, you know, we're, we're, we're just, there's so much of wrestling in places other than North yeah. America, Europe, and Japan that we know nothing about. In fact, when we talk about Hercules Cortez later, oh, we yeah. don't know a whole lot about his career because he spent many years as a big star in Spain where there's just no documentation yeah. of, of things. Um Howard, of course, was a longtime journeyman. Uh, in fact, his complete title history may only uh, include two tag team championship reigns. One was a run in Japan as IWA tag team champ with Red Bastine. And the other was uh, a few years later when he was one half of the Columbus, Georgia tag team champions with Killer Brooks. Oh. Uh, yeah. Next up is Joe Scarpello. Uh, Jessica Pillow, he was a wrestling teammate of uh, Bob Geigel at the University of Iowa, where he placed first in his weight division in both his freshman and senior years. Uh, I was looking at a list of, of Joe's most frequent opponents uh, on WrestlingData.com. And, you know, in in the top 10 or top 15 were two wrestlers who are probably better known worldwide for their post-wrestling careers as character actors. And that's Lenny Montana and Hardboiled yeah. Haggerty. Oh, wow. That's cool. Uh, Lenny Montana, of course, was uh, Luca Brasi in The Godfather and Hardboiled yeah. Haggerty. One of those guys, you've seen him. You might not have seen, have known, oh, that's Hardboiled Haggerty. Yeah. But when you see a picture of him, you're like, oh, I know that guy. That guy. That's yeah. like, so who's your favorite, oh, that guy actor? Like when you're watching a movie that you didn't know <sighs> they were in and they pop up. So for me, it's there's uh, it's Richard Kind. I, I was, th- th- I <laughs> sw- hand to God. That is exactly who I was going to say. <laughs> so I, just I was, couldn't remember his name. Yeah. Yes. When I was uh, years ago, when the, the movie, the producers, the second version of the movie, you know, the one yeah. that came out after the Broadway play uh, was in theaters. I actually went to see it in Florida with my grandmother. 
So, and it's opening weekend. So it's a very full theater and, and a lot of older folks and he's in the movie and he's not announced because he's not one of the stars, but it's a court scene. And his first appearance is a close up of his face standing there. And if you know what Richard Kind looks like, he's got that face. Literally half the theater went, oh, this guy. (laughs) That's fantastic. Uh, Moving on to the heels in the preliminary wrestlers category. First up is uh, Tretch Phillips. I talked about him, I think, uh, in a, a few few years back. Um, yeah. Did a dive, but he was uh, Jack Briscoe's first opponent on record. Oh wow! Uh, he also was said to have been Elvis Presley's favorite wrestler. Man, that's pretty, uh, two pretty cool facts. Yeah. Next up, Joe Turco. <laughs> Joe Turco was once a tag team partner of John Arezzi. Huh? Did they win? No. <laughs> okay. No, 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 no. Uh, Turco was born in Sicily. Uh, two other notable wrestlers born in Sicily were Al Costello and Dr. John Bonica. And Dr. Bonica is well known uh, in the medical field for his post-wrestling career as literally the founding father of the discipline of pain medicine. Huh. And I'm sure his pro-wrestling career you know, was probably what inspired him yes. to uh, try and figure out how to handle the pain. I forget about Costello being from Italy, too. Uh, yeah. Huh. And then finally, uh, Ox Baker, who was Ox- just finishing up earlier in the year. And, and this was early in his career. Uh, despite his size, he really spent a lot of time as a prelim guy here and even for Dusik and I think for McGurk in the uh, late 60s, early 70s. Hmm. His role in Escape from New York was first offered to Bruiser Brody. Uh, but Brody couldn't do it because of his uh, obligations in Japan. Well, you mentioned Escape from New York. That is also the movie that inspired my first ring name as a wrestling manager. I started as the Duke of New York. Oh. And that, of course, cool. is from that that one of my yeah, favorite yeah, yeah. movies of all time, the Kurt Russell uh, vehicle, Escape from New York. Oh. Now, you'll notice that we did not list Vern Gagne as a member of the full-time roster. Um when I set all this up to do my stats, I ha- I set up some very strict rules to determine who's a regular and who's a part-timer. Um, without going into too much details, you have to – I look at the most frequently booked wrestlers in the territory and see how often they were booked. And to be a regular, you have to have been booked at least 40% as much as those guys. So we mentioned earlier, Vern had two dozen bookings during the year. When I look at – wrestlers Nick Bockwinkle and Bull Belinsky, who are both full-timers here for the whole year, they each had about 160 advertised bookings in our records. So Vern had less than 40% of that number. Hence, he's a part-timer. Other part-timers are some random prelim guys and a lot of the wrestlers that worked for Dick the Bruiser that would work the Chicago cards. I mentioned earlier, Chicago was a weird hybrid show featuring wrestlers from both the AWA and the WWA. When I calculated my stats, I included all the wrestlers that worked in Chicago. So guys like um, yeah, uh, Heenan and Wilbur Snyder and, and some others uh, show up as part-timers here. Yeah. I imagine, again, not to make this comparison uh, again, uh, but it re- reminds me a lot of how the WWWF would have their, you know, a lot of part-timers in each you know, yeah, in, they had in the Pittsburgh. Markets. They had the Pittsburgh prelim guys. You had the New England prelim guys, and then you had the New York, uh, you know, prelim guys. Yeah, yeah. That that again, another similarity between those two territories. Yeah, because when again you look at the what surprised me initially when I looked at the fact sheet 
was for such a large, you know, geographical territory, I, it struck me as a relatively small full-time crew. Right. What yeah. what it looks like happens is when they run the major cities, it's a the whole crew is working Denver, yeah. Milwaukee, so on and so forth. When they're running the smaller areas is when they usually split the crew up and they have two cards, each one having three or four matches each. So you're talking, you know, about 16 guys uh, yeah. at any one time uh, regularly working the towns and the territory. Uh, we briefly mentioned that wrestler Hercules Cortez died in a car accident driving back from a show in Winnipeg. Now, this is um, the second major death in wrestling that we've covered on this podcast that occurred in 1971, the other being Alberto Torres, uh, who was working for Dusik, uh, who died after injury suffered in a match, which probably was just a, an exacerbation of a pre-existing uh, issue. But in the case of Cortez, this is a car accident, and he was actually in the car with his tag team partner, Red Bastine. Red miraculously only suffered minor injuries, but Cortez was thrown from the car uh, and traveled a long distance before apparently landing on his head, breaking his neck and dying instantly. Yeah. Um, so the drive from Winnipeg to Minnesota uh, to Minneapolis under normal conditions, if you're driving at or slightly above the speed limit was about a seven or eight hour drive. And that just gives you an idea of how big this yeah. territory was. Because Winnipeg was like a monthly stop for this territory. And there's no major cities, you know, between Minneapolis and Winnipeg. So you can't do a thing where you drive a couple hours, work a show, stay over, and then drive a few more hours the next day to be in Winnipeg. Uh, um, again, another thing that it had in common with the WWWF. The AWA ran throughout Wisconsin and Minnesota, stretching south into Illinois and part of Iowa, stretching west into North Dakota, north to Winnipeg, and even running regular shows in Denver. Now, while all the other towns were driving, it looks like in Denver they flew the whole crew uh, to to the show. Because that's it's a long drive, and there's mountains, and it's probably even more treacherous than the yeah. other drives. Um, and again, just like with Winnipeg, there's nothing on the way. You can't break it up into a series of smaller trips with smaller shows. And there's really nothing around Denver um, that they could have made a two-day deal out of. You could have driven there, you know, done uh, – I think there's – I have records for one show in Boulder the night before a show in Denver. But other than that, there's just nothing – there's no way they can make a two-day trip out of it to justify the drive. So even the prelim wrestlers, it appears that they were flying everybody into Denver. Again, there's not there's not a Denver-based crew of prelim guys like the Pittsburgh or New England crews we mentioned earlier when talking about the WWWF. Yeah. Um, talking about the number of big markets that the AWA had in their territory, they were in four of the top 30 markets in the U.S. That does include Chicago, which is that joint, you know, AWA, WWA show, but four out of the top 30 and nine out of the top 100. So if you figure there are, you know, 20 territories in the U.S., 5% would be average. Here, they're in, you know, 11, you know, a 10, 10 or 11% of uh, the big markets. See, four out of 30 is one out of seven and a half. So that's like 13, 14%. Nine out of 100 is 9%. So they're in a much higher percentage of the major, major markets than pretty much every other territory except for the WWWF. 
We also have attendance figures on our site as part of a year in the life. And uh, this territory in the early 70s was definitely one of the stronger ones attendance-wise. They're drawing regular sellout crowds in Milwaukee in a 6,500-seat venue. And they would occasionally run a 10,000 or more seat venue and draw very well there. Uh, They were drawing... Six to eight thousand in Winnipeg regularly. They drew several thousand in Denver. Uh, Minnesota and St. Paul generally seems to have done well. They did very well in Green Bay. Uh, at first, they were running uh, just outside of Green Bay and they were drawing like 3,000. And they finally were able to get dates in the Brown County Veterans Memorial Arena and again drew several thousand for many of the shows. So just a really good drawing territory and and presumably a well-paying territory because of that. Uh, Back to Hercules Cortez, our pal David Gibb wrote a profile on Cortez that you can see at chartingtheterritories.com as part of the year in the life. And I want to mention that David also has a new uh, serial story that not a story about Rice Krispies, but S-E-R-I-A-L that he's been releasing in weekly installments on his site, aceyourcomeback.com. The story is called No Justice. And speaking of our website, I did a slight redesign. Uh, Now you can download the PDF file of A Year in the Life directly from our site, as opposed to having to go to PayHip to do it. You can also view the latest one in your browser as a PDF file. And then if you want to download it uh, so you can have it and hold it and print it out and love it and bring it to me and I'll <laughs> autograph it for you, you now have that option very easily through chartingtheterritories.com. Also, the other reason I did it, it makes it so much easier for me because I have to create these as a PDF and then to then translate it to have it display as a web page took a lot of time. So now I can just put the PDF up on the site and it uh, you can view it in the browser as a PDF. All this functionality. Uh, wow. Yes. The, yes. I'm the cult of functionality. <laughs> look in my, uh, look at my site. What do you see? The cult of functionality. <laughs> so you can read about Hercules Cortez on our site, but now you yes. can hear about him as well. Um, oh, yeah. You know, he spent so much of his career in Spain and passed away in 1971. There's just not a whole lot of video footage of him to be found. But, John, you did find a few clips on the YouTube, and we have put your curated playlist up on our YouTube channel. So be sure to check that out. If you don't already subscribe to us on YouTube, you can just go there and search for Charting the Territories and hit that subscribe button. Uh, John, tell us a little bit about the three videos that you have on this playlist. Yeah, three is all I could find, and neither of them are terribly long. You know, it's a lot of the times on our playlist, I give you, I give you the forty-five minute match. You know that you've got to sit through. These are all. I, I don't think anything is over three minutes here. Um, the first one is really cool uh, from Spain, from nineteen sixty-five. Uh, match again, only about two minutes. So cool to see Cortez here. He'd been wrestling, you know, at this point for fifteen years or so, but he still looks great. Um, this, I love this clip just for no other reason to see how massive he is. He's a huge, huge dude. He makes like Bruiser and Crusher look like the Mulkey brothers. He's huge, huge, huge guy. Uh, not much in the way of advanced grappling techniques here. It's mostly him throwing his opponent around. Um, but 
Cortez does win the match with a half crab submission, which I which I was surprised by. I, I don't know what I was expecting as a, as a finish, maybe a, a body slam or something, but he had the, the half crab submission as a finisher. Um, I think they actually overdubbed animal sounds at the end of this film to sync up when he flexes. I don't know if it's like a gorilla or a seal or a lion, some some sort of zoo animal making a noise, uh, which is very funny. Um, I also got a clip from him in a 1968 Spanish film, Apollo in advance for how I pronounce this, Cuidado con las señoras, which I think is beware of the women. Um, very Sa- short. Clip. Sound advice for us all. Yes, a very <laughs> short clip. And I must admit that this is the all I've, all I've seen of him in the movies. Barges into a room, throttles a skinny guy with glasses. Again, all in Spanish, so I have no idea what they're saying. Uh, breaks a coat rack over his knee, growls at the skinny guy, a lady screams, Cortez leaves. Uh, I assume these are all the kind of roles he would play in his movie career, the heavy, the enforcer, right. what have you. Um, lastly, this one is like very, very close to before his his, his death. Um, June 71 in Chicago, uh, Cortez and Bastien against the Vachon brothers. Again, not a, a not a very long clip. Bob Luce on the call, which is always a, always a win for me. Basically, we see Cortez exchange some blows with one of the Vachons. Gets him up in a slam, puts him on the top turnbuckle, tags Bastine. Bastine gets Bashan, Mad Dog Bashan, in a abdominal stretch. Uh, thing ends in a big brawl. Not a lot of Cortez in action, but you you do get to see how big he is. He's still big, just like a big big guy. <laughs> it's, it's interesting because he's he's incredibly muscular, but he is not jacked like superstar Billy Graham. No, he's but he's just... also doesn't have the dad bod or what no. we would today call the dad bod. He is. Big and muscular and just it's one of those that I don't think you really appreciate it until you see him standing next to normal sized people, uh, similar to yes. Billy Gunn. You have no yes. idea how tall Billy Gunn is until you see him standing next to n- normal, normal sized people. Yeah. And, then and I do I actually massive. I have a photo of him uh, from like 58 in like the Montreal Forum dressing room standing next to a woman. And he's just like you could fit three of her in front of him you know like he's that he's just a big and especially seeing these guys in suits you know like the suits just look hilarious on them he's just so so big and just like thick yep yeah so um you also dug up a couple of immigration cards for cortez and uh some photos of him including one from a 1958 madison square garden program and that card was headlined by the uh the kangaroos uh, taking on the team of Rocca and Perez, who, of course, were mm-hmm. just inducted as a team into the Wrestling Observer Hall of Fame. Indeed. Uh, we will we'll put these uh, these documents and pictures up on X uh, using the hashtag CTTDEC23, if you want to check those out. Um, uh, one of the more interesting things about Cortez's career, he did spend some time in the States uh, and then went back to Spain, uh, had a couple of brief tours of Australia, but when he came to the AWA in late, in late 1970, it was almost certainly to take his mind off some uh, pressing legal issues he had in Spain. And this was something that was discovered <laughs> by wrestling historian Phil Lyons that um, you can read about more about on our website uh, uh, in David Gibbs' profile. But it seems that while Cortez was wrestling in Spain, he had a side gig um, Running drugs uh, for gangs. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, he was arrested and tried, uh, and and 
basically the, uh, the profile by Gibbs sort of uh, you know goes back and forth describing his time in the in the AWA in, in 1971 with what was going on back home but he had been found guilty and his lawyer appealed so while he was still in the states uh I, you know they were going to await the appeal to see how that went but it was very possible that uh if the sentence was upheld that Cortez would have been deported of course he passed away before any of that yeah. And because of those circumstances, it actually led to some papers in Spain a couple of years later speculating that his death was staged. Yeah, which that's, that's so crazy. Yeah, which is wild. But you know, again, when you think of the circumstances, was you know arrested and tried and found guilty, yet was able to travel to the U.S. and live there and, and work there full time. And then, right as it looked like things were you know going to come to a finite uh, you know conclusion. He dies. It, it is quite the coincidence, but that doesn't mean there's a deeper story at hand. Yeah, I also like I, I love wacky stories like this, crazy theories like this. Um, but I, I can't imagine someone who looks like Hercules Cortez slipping around anonymously, you know, like just some, <laughs> like if it was someone who looked like you or I. Sure. Well, fit in. I'm I'm going to say something and I I'm going to preface this by saying this is something I never participated in but I I I've got to thinking wrestling is a really great outlet for something like that think about it uh, particularly and I'm talking about on the indies think about it. you have guys from all sorts of places all converging at one, on one night in one town most of whom don't know each other's real names hmm it's actually a, a pretty good way to to traffic in 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 things if you so chose because of the anonymity and the uh, you know just the fact that you have people all coming from all across the place going in one meeting at one spot and then going back out in different directions afterwards. Yeah, it reminds me of the uh, the tank the tank Morgan stories, you know. Right, exactly. Whatever, whatever he had. What, done, a, yeah. what a great cover for him to possibly allegedly <laughs> theoretically be a hired hitman. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, you know, Cortez also apparently was uh, was a big star in Spain. Again, we really don't know what that entails. But he, in addition to wrestling, he also would appear on you know like talk shows and and uh, other shows doing feats of strength and challenging you know audience members to feats of strength. So he was a pretty big deal. Yet apparently, because of his involvement in the drug trade, uh, you know, jeopardized all of that. And even if he had lived um, and not been in the car accident, it, it seems like. Uh, his his you know career outside of prison was over. Yeah, it's interesting trying to again because he's in Spain. It's difficult to find exactly what he did athletically before becoming a wrestler. But I, I did read something that he uh, <laughs> was javelin was his thing, which is bizarre to think about him, someone who looks like him. I, 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 this is terribly offensive. Apologies in advance. <laughs> but when I when I think of the javelin, the first person I think of is Lamar from Revenge of the Nerds. <laughs> you know? So imagining when I read that, I just thought of like uh, Alfonso Chicaro doing like the Lamar from Revenge of the Nerds. It just didn't 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 work for me. But that was apparently his his most notable venture into amateur sport. Okay. And again, we talked about the uh, immigration cards. One of his early ones from. 1958 i think when he first came to the u.s the the word boxer is scrawled on it too so you know apparently i don't know if that's just 
was just happenstance or if he had a legitimate boxing career, but there's no, I can't find any record of him either golden globes or golden globes or as a pro boxer, but it, cause it almost seems like his body would be too big for boxing. Almost, you know? <laughs> yeah. Well, like, you, you mentioned javelin earlier. Whenever I think of javelin, <laughs> I think of the shot put. Uh, and so did you read, you know, this past week about uh, Brock Lesnar's daughter? Yes. My, uh, his daughter, Maya Lesnar, I guess set a record uh, in the shot put. Uh, she's in college in Colorado. Yeah. Uh, so I, I always put those track and field events, yep. uh, lump them all together. Um, yeah, but with Cortez, it's just a shame that we don't know factual information uh, about his life. And we just have to take what we have and try and put together a bigger picture about mm-hmm. his life. Um, of course, you know, he grew up in uh, Spain, literally, I think, you know, right around the time of uh, the Civil War. I think uh, several of his siblings actually were killed. Yeah, five, the Spanish Civil War. I think he had five older siblings. He was the youngest of, I think, 13 children. And his father apparently was a distinguished lawyer, which is very interesting considering <laughs> yeah. the circumstances. And his mother, uh, daughter of a prominent cattle rancher. So despite what seems like he grew up in a relatively well-heeled environment, turbulent times, uh, you know, the mid to late 30s, uh, I think five of his older siblings enlisted and fought. Two of them died in the war. And one of his sisters, 18-year-old Maria, was kidnapped and tortured and killed as a civilian. Wow. So there's a lot of a lot of strife and a lot of tragedy in his life early and, on. And, you know, perhaps that you know, might tell us why he ended up doing some of the things he did later on yeah. in life. You know, yeah, uh, yeah. tragedy and trauma uh, yeah. can, can, you know, impact your future. So, yeah, you know, so now that you are listeners, I hope you know a little more about Hercules Cortez. Uh, but now it's time to test John and see how much he knows about Ooh, professional baby. wrestling as, uh, and see how his knowledge stacks up to that of this month's challenger. Because it's okay. time, John, to play Gordon Soli's championship Ooh. wrestling trivia. John, you are undefeated. <laughs> One yes. and oh. Yeah, yeah. After turning back the challenge of Milwaukee-based sports writer Todd Rosiak last month, John, you have a new challenger. Let's meet them now. This is John LaRocca, and I challenge John Boucher to a round of Gordon Soli's Championship Wrestling Trivia. John LaRocca is this month's challenger. John, tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, I got involved in wrestling around 1997, just volunteering at All Pro Wrestling in Hayward, California. Um, just kind of just kept my mouth shut and listened and <laughs> did all that. Uh, took a little bit of a break around 98, a little bit of 99. And then I uh, would come pop in here and there. But I came back usually around, I think right after Michael Modis and the crew went to, uh, they started their own pressing iron promotion. And, and then I came back and was helping out again. and. Started doing commentary, somehow thrust into a, as a manager, <laughs> learning how to bump as a manager to uh, eventually, you know, booking all pro wrestling. And uh, in 2012 to uh, 2000, excuse me, 2008 to 2012. And then I left APW, started my own little promotion, 
Premier Wrestling from 2013 to 2016. And then when I closed that up, uh, Marcus uh, Mack ended up buying uh, APW from Roland and Roland Pass. He, he got all the rights to it and stuff. Um, he asked me back as to help book APW. So I did that from uh, 2016 to 2019. So, and, uh, and currently, I'm a podcaster on the Fight Game podcast on the Wrestling Observer website. So if you're a subscriber there, you can listen to our show with uh, me and Garrett Gonzalez. So that's what I've been doing lately. So I'm, I'm excited to be on this show, though. John Boucher, your challenger, John LaRocca, is a man that has worn many hats in professional wrestling. From unpaid intern, which I think <laughs> describes most of my career in wrestling, uh, to manager, to booker, to promoter, to podcaster, and is currently the host of the weekly Fight Game podcast, which can be found on the Figure Four Wrestling Observer uh, website. Uh, he's your challenger. He's uh, he's you know, he he's literally done everything in pro wrestling, so he might know his stuff. So, John, yeah, uh, how are you feeling about this month's challenger? I've done nothing in pro wrestling, so I'm very very concerned for myself. This is like the battle battle of the Johns. You know, I remember in the late seventies, you know, the uh, WWF had the battle of the Ivans at Madison yes. Garden. They had a well, uh, Ivan Putski versus Ivan Koloff match. This is this is that. Battle hopefully our listeners are intrigued by the Battle of the Johns and decide not to take a break and go to the John. <laughs> hopefully. Uh, hold it. All right. Hold it. Well, the time for talking is over and the time for trivia is here. John B., please it, step into your isolation chamber and then we will begin. I got to do some upkeep to this chamber. It's getting a little stinky and smelly in here. Okay. Well, all right. John is uh, sequestered in his isolation chamber. And that means that John LaRocca is ready to go. Now, before we begin, I just want to briefly go over the rules once more for our challenger and for our listeners. Both John L. and John B. will have 20 seconds to answer each question. I will ask John L. all four questions first while John B. is in the isolation chamber that we built in his home. Uh, John L. can ask for a hint for one of the first three questions only, you must ask for the hint at the time the question is asked, and the 20-second timer will be stopped while the hint is given, um, and you cannot ask for a hint for the fourth question. So if you haven't used your hint um, after the first three questions are asked, you cannot use it for the fourth. And here's the catch. If you do ask for a hint, John B. will automatically be given the same hint for the same question and be given a hint for the fourth question, which is typically either a true-false or a fill-in-the-blank question. If both Johns answer the same number of questions correctly, we will go to the bonus question for a tiebreaker. So we are ready to begin. John L., are you ready? I am ready. Excellent. Question number one, and I will preface this question by saying that while the year 1974 is mentioned in the question, I believe it's actually referring to something that took place in 1976. Additionally, okay. the answer to the question is just the wrestler's name. Okay. So the question, what wrestler and his manager reportedly discovered Plowboy Frazier while driving through Mississippi in 1974? Sam Bass? That is incorrect. Oh. We were looking for the wrestler's name. Oh, sorry. Which was Jerry Lawler. Oh, my goodness gracious. How did I mess that up? And the manager was Sam Bass. 
Oh. <laughs> All right. Question number two. <laughs> what college did Blackjack Mulligan attend? West Essex State? That is incorrect. Oh, my goodness. The answer was the University of Texas at El Paso. Oh, my God. I also would have accepted Texas Western College, which was its name when Mulligan attended. They changed the name in 66. Question number three. Oh, man. Which wrestler teamed with Dusty Rhodes to hold the NWA World Tag Team belts from October of 1984 to March of 1985? The Raging Bull, Manny Fernandez. That is correct. Hey. You have answered one question correctly out of the first three. Uh, now we're up to question four. And again, since you chose not to use any hints for the first three questions, John mm. won't be getting any hints, but also you cannot use a hint for this question. Okay. So question number four, this is a fill in the blank question. Okay. Lateral blank. Lateral press. That is correct. All right. John LaRocca correctly answered two out of four questions. I am now going to signal for John to uh, exit the isolation chamber, and we will see uh, how he does. All right, John B., it is now your turn. John L. correctly answered two out of four questions. Okay. So if you get three or more correct, you win. If you get one or less correct, John L. wins. And if you get two correct, then we will go to the bonus question. John L. did not use a hint, so you will not be getting any hints for these questions. And the timer will begin as soon as I finish asking each one. Okay. John B., are you ready to play Gordon Soley's Championship Wrestling Trivia? I'm ready, baby. Question number one. I will preface this question by saying <laughs> that while the year 1974 is mentioned in the question, I believe this is actually referring to something that took place in 1976. And the answer to the question is just the wrestler's name. Okay. Thank you. What wrestler and his manager reportedly discovered Plowboy Frazier while driving through Mississippi in 1974? Oh, la, 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 Question number two. What college did Blackjack Mulligan attend? Oh, ooh, uh, I, I don't know. I'm just going to go with West Texas State. That is incorrect. Yeah. And that is what uh, John LaRocca answered as well. <laughs> yes. uh, I, I think yeah, the, of- the answer was the University of Texas at El Paso. I also oh, yeah. I also would have accepted Texas Western College, which was its name when Mulligan attended. But uh, it, in 1966, it changed its name to UTEP. Gotcha. All right. One for two. Okay. Question number three. 
which wrestler teamed with Dusty Rhodes to hold the NWA World Tag Team Belt from October of 1984 to March of 1985? Who, boy. I should know this. Ten seconds. Two seconds. Uh, Magnum TA. That is incorrect. The answer is Manny Fernandez. Oh, the Raging Bull. All right. John L. answered two questions correctly. John, you have one question right with one question left. (laughs) The pressure is on, baby. This is a fill-in-the-blank question. Lateral blank. Lateral press? That is correct. (sighs) John B., you answered two out of four questions correctly. And John L. answered two out of four questions correctly. This is drama, baby. That means it's time for the bonus question. So here are the rules. You will each have 15 seconds to answer the bonus question. The correct answer to the question is a whole number greater than zero. John L. will be asked the question first, and then John B. will be able to choose if he thinks the correct answer is higher or lower than the answer you gave. If John is correct, he wins. If not, you win. And of course, if your guess is exactly correct, then uh, I, you know John, John can't win. Here we go. According to WrestlingData.com, how many wrestling house shows were held at the Cow Palace in the entirety of the Roy Shire big-time wrestling era? I'm going to say 63. Okay. John LaRocca answered 63. John B., do you think the answer is higher or lower? I'm going to go higher. The number of house shows run at the Cow Palace uh, in San Francisco uh, in the entirety of the Roy Shire era was 243. John Boucher, you are correct. The answer was higher than John LaRocca's guess. John Boucher, you continue your undefeated streak. Ooh, I am so sweaty. (laughs) That was nerve-wracking. So I, um, oh, my goodness. Yeah, that that was nerve wracking. Uh, John John Larocca got the first question, uh, the first two questions incorrect. Uh, I told you he he guessed uh, West Texas State for question number two. He also, unfortunately, uh, for question number one, his answer was Sam Bass, which, oh. based on how the question was asked, was incorrect. Uh, and uh. of course, he was given the exact same. Uh, Info before the question was asked that you did. He got Manny Fernandez right. As a disclaimer, uh, Manny actually worked for All Pro Wrestling when John LaRocca was there. And it was a it was a very dramatic uh, time because uh, Manny pretty much caused all sorts of chaos while he was there. So I think John was much more familiar with uh, Manny Fernandez. Um, so but then it came down to question number four and uh and then we went to the bonus question. So congratulations <laughs> to John Boucher. My guy, you are undefeated. I know. But sadly, that means I'm going to have to up the competition for next month. 
why? Why? Uh, so why? I, I hear sirens, John. Are, are you safe? Are you hunkered <laughs> down? Are you okay? Okay. Did someone call him saying there's a guy freaking out over a trivia <laughs> contest? Please send help. Someone's someone probably wanted to do a wellness check on me after they smelled the the the, the, the scent coming from chamber. my isolation chamber. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm glad you're okay, and I'm glad you have uh, come this far because that about does it for this month. So next yeah. month we're going to head out west. Back in August, we looked at Southern California and Mike LaBelle's territory, and to kick off 2024, we're going to Northern California and the territory run by Roy Shire. In 1971. So we've got Pat Patterson, Ray Stevens, Pepper Gomez, The Rock's dad, The Rock's granddad, a future superstar just beginning his second year as a pro, and a guy who's part of one of my favorite anecdotes. Uh, This guy allegedly walked into Jim Barnett's office in Australia and declared that he had mastered professional wrestling and learned everything there was to learn and quit on the spot. (laughs) Now, it would have been great if he never wrestled again. Sadly, that didn't turn out to be the case. But man, that would would have been such a great way to go. (laughs) Uh, So each and every month, John and I learn new things as we do our research for this podcast. And each and every month, we each name one of those things on a segment we call This Month I Learned. So, John, what did you learn this month? So over the Thanksgiving holiday weekend there, I was reading Steve Kern's book, Came Across an interesting little story. I would assume most of our listeners know the story about Steve Kern's dad being the POW in Vietnam for seven years or whatever it was, thanks to the, the Bob Roop angle. Anyway, while his dad was still being held prisoner, uh, the Air Force was still trying to draft Steve Kern. <laughs> and, and he's explaining to the officials, look, my dad has been a POW since I was 13 years old. Don't mind getting drafted. Happy to serve my country. But not until my dad's home. Right. And and they explained to Steve that if his dad had been killed, he would have been granted a deferment. But since he was still alive, no such luck. Um, and this is prior to Steve's wrestling career. But he had been powerlifting with Mike Rams. So he was all, all jacked up on steroids. This is according to his own commission. So I'm not telling telling tales out of school. He talks about it in his book. All jacked up on steroids. He's huge. And they're like, you know, you're 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 way too overweight for your your height. Um, so he was hoping that because of his weight, he would be uh, what they call 4F'd, similar to the way we talked about like Bill Watts and Wahoo McDaniel avoided being drafted because they were just, for right. that time, they were just, they were the metrics were all squares. They were so huge, unusually large for that time, but no such luck. Uh, so a few months later, Steve's mom tells him that there was a Texas businessman who was touring the country promoting his plan to provide additional aid to POWs and families of POWs, and that people had contacted her with hopes of getting Steve to attend. Uh, so Steve goes to the function, sitting on stage, you know, he's, afterward he's talking to the businessman, he explains what's going on with his dad and how they're trying to draft him. And the businessman, you know, it's like, well, I got a lot of friends in high places, so I'll see what I can do. And within a very short time, a bill was passed in Texas that stipulated that one could not be drafted into the military if one of your family members was an active POW. And Steve Kern became the first person to be classified as 1H. Wow. Uh, And the Texas businessman who came to the aid of a young Steve Kern was future U.S. presidential candidate Ross Perot. You imagine 
if cell phones had existed at that time, he probably would have, as soon as Kern stated his case, Ross would have gotten on the cell phone and called somebody and said, all right, all done. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's much better than my thing. Earlier when we were going down the roster, I mentioned uh, this is related to Butcher Vashon and his family. Um, and after I thought about this, I think I heard it around the time it happened, but I, I forgot about it. So I, I maybe this is this month I relearned. But... <laughs> It's pretty well known that Luna Vachon, the adopted daughter of Butcher Vachon, was once married to Gangrel, David Heath. This month, I learned or relearned that Gangrel was Luna's third husband and that her second husband was Tom Nash, who had been teaming up with Gangrel as the Blackhearts. And this was literally during the time they were teaming. And while they didn't wrestle as much after this little switcheroo, they did <laughs> team up afterwards. So it, it yeah. couldn't have, uh, you know, I would imagine it couldn't have been a happy situation, but uh, it seems to have at least not been a really, you know, bad situation. But yes, yeah. she uh, was married to a wrestler and then got divorced and married to that wrestler's tag team partner. Wow. That's a hell of a love triangle there. Yeah. You were talking about Steve Kern's book. Uh, that is, of course, called The Kern Chronicles, and it was written yes. by... Ian Douglas. I, I love his uh, biographies because they're very, you know, they're very fact of the matter. They're, they're, there's little in the way of embellishment and tall tales. Uh, they're just, you know, very good tellings of the lives of these wrestlers. Uh, of course, Bugsy McGraw was another one who had mm-hmm. his uh, biography written by Ian. And we had, we were able to get Bugsy uh, on the show for a little yeah. interview uh, a while back, thanks to Ian. Uh, I also want to mention that Ian actually just uh, had a story published online about the first wrestler named Rufus Jones. Um, yes. Rufus R. Jones was the third wrestler named Rufus Jones. Um, but the, a very interesting story about the first wrestler named Rufus Jones is now online. Uh, so uh, if you want to search for it, just look for Ian Douglas uh, Rufus Jones, yes. uh, and hopefully that will come up. And speaking of Rufus R. Jones, of course, that gives me a wonderful opportunity to plug my new book, the uh, 1971 to 1973 Heart of America Central States Wrestling Almanac, which, of course, Rufus was a big part of the territory in the early 1970s. Uh, the book is available worldwide on Amazon. Just search for Charting the Territories Al Gets, where you can buy not just that book, but also my two previous books covering Leroy McGurk's territory. And if you want an autographed copy, you can order it from chartingtheterritories.com. You can find me on X or Twitter, whatever your preference to call it, um, at <laughs> Al Gets Wrestling. And also, you can follow uh, this month's challenger for trivia, John LaRocca, at LaRoccaJL. And if you're a subscriber to the Wrestling Observer slash Figure Four, you can listen to him and Garrett Gonzalez every week on the Fight Game podcast. So, John, where can our listeners find you and what do you have cooking in the oven these days? <laughs> you can find me on X at... Uh J-O-N underscore B-O-U-C-H-E-R. I also just got a, I joined the, the Blue Sky. I got a Blue Sky invite. I haven't I'll posted plug that anything, too. But I'm at same, same, same handle. Okay. I haven't posted anything, but I, I, and there, I haven't really dug into it, but I would love to get a little, you know, a little wrestling thing going on there with a, all us wrestling historians, researchers, et cetera. It might be fun. Um, I got nothing to plug. It's holiday season. 
it's a festive time for a lot of us, happy times. A lot of people, it's not such a happy time. So go out of your way, be nice to everybody, reach out to people you think who might not be having a great time. That's all I want to plug. Yeah. The holiday season is a great time to, uh, you know, reach out to your friends and just let them know you're there and you're thinking of them. Uh, the charting the territories podcast comes out on the second Thursday of every month to be the first to know when new episodes are available. Subscribe now, wherever you find your favorite podcasts and at charting the